All right, good morning, everybody. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Kabbalah and Cannolis. No, wait, is my mic on? Huh? Okay. Oh, were you sitting on that for like two, three days? Was that just right now? That's, that's brilliant. Because we're talking about constellations today. Wow. This is... This is <laughs> so Kabbalah and coffee and constellations and just a lot of a lot of fun. That's that's what we're doing today. Um, as uh, by way of introduction, we are starting chapter four in our text, Feminine Faith, which is page forty-six. I have handouts. Um, handouts begin with chapter three. Don't be alarmed. It's got chapter four at the back of it as an addendum. I stapled it onto the back just in case you wanted to get some context. Pass some here, and pass some this way as well. I'll retain a copy. Take and pass, please. Or pass. Okay. Go to chapter 4 again. Page 46, chapter 4. We, I, I have other handouts that I'm going to give out in a second. But first I want to begin with um, Hakaras Hatov. Hakaras Hatov means uh, a recognition of thanks. And would like to, uh, first of all, thank our sponsor this week, Denise Marcellus. Uh, Denise is, uh, is not here today, but we thank her. Also want to thank, um, you know, we're starting a new year. This is our first uh, session in 2012. And so it's appropriate to, 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 to mention those that make, uh, make this class happen every week and make it um, that much smoother. So first of all, Joanne, thank you for handling the weekly email every single week and reminding me to remind you to remind me to remind <laughs> about getting, uh, getting the information out there. It's, uh, it's, we, I, I appreciate it, and I'm sure everybody else appreciates it as well. Thank you. Um, thank you to Erica for handling the, uh, uh, the sign-in sheets, the, the, the sponsorship. Right, Erica did an amazing job, and, and thank you to everyone for, for you know, when, when, the, when the sheet went around for stepping up and, and, and taking a Sunday, we've had every Sunday sponsored since, uh, since the beginning. It's not a lot of money. It's 20 bucks, but it's, it definitely helps out. And uh, very much appreciated. Erica is always on top of it and always reminding me and, and, and Joanne as well to get everything in the email. And uh, Erica, thank you for your efforts. I um, also want to quickly mention here at the top, this is uh, some technical stuff, but I feel like sometimes uh, at the end it gets lost. Um, we are looking to expand... Kabbalah and coffee in various ways. And we're looking for not only uh, help with that, but also input with regard to that. So if anybody um, wants to find out more about this, the Kabbalah and coffee uh, expansion campaign. And again, expansion not only, it, it means in different areas. Uh, please uh, come to me at the end of the class and uh, I'll, I'll tell you more about this. All right, without further ado, let's begin. Okay, let's begin. So, the problem is that as human beings, we don't change very easily. Right? As human beings, we don't change very easily. Now, I think, think about it. Think about it this way. Think about friends that you had since grade school. Like old friends. And maybe you're still in contact with some, maybe Facebook, whatever. But by raise of hand, who can say, like, I know that person from when they were four and five and they're the same person? Right? 
No, I thought I was going to get more of a reason. Yeah, right? Come on. Come on. Come on, people. But even the nature and the personality, a lot of stuff sticks. Now, you, you would never know that somebody's interests would turn into um, technology or science. And you, maybe you didn't know that, the particulars. But the general nature, and when I say nature, I want to focus on one specific thing. And that is the emotional in a sense, the emotional nature. And why do I want to focus on the emotional nature? Because that is the rawest part of the human being. Think about it this way. When a situation presents itself, how do you react? How do you naturally react? That is an emotional, that's an emotional uh, thing. Your, your reaction is an emotional reaction. When you're confronted with a situation of... Uh, danger or something that's exciting or something. So certain people respond in different ways. Some people, when there's a challenge, they're excited about the challenge. Some people are fearful about the challenge. Some people get sad about challenges. And I and you can see it in childhood. You can see it with I see it with my kids. You have we have we have a few boys, several boys at this point, four boys, and at this point, and and you know well the youngest okay is not reacting to the situation and each you know the different ages but you can see how they react before we t- before they're guided as far as how to look at it and 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 before they think about it their their initial reaction their initial emotional react how do, when something happens what's your reaction that initial reaction seems to a large extent hardwired within the individual if we want to call it the nature of a person, we could. Now, again, we, I once explained that nature, the way it's explained in Tanya and Chassidus and Kabbalah, is that the word nature refers to that which we can't understand and can't explain. So we say, oh, it's its nature. Or when you can't explain rationally why something is like that, you say, oh, that's its nature. So why does one child or one person in a, situa- in, in a scenario react one way and the other person the other way? That's their nature. One person reacts this way, one person reacts the other way. It's more of an, but what my point is that nature or reaction is more of an emotional thing as opposed to an intellectual thing. So I want to focus here on the story of Joseph. The story of Joseph is well documented. We've discussed it many times in this class, we've discussed it in other classes, our Wednesday night class. I want to bring up one point with regard to the story of Joseph. And it's in the handout, where it says God's plan. And, and the truth is, the header that I put there, God's plan, is not really what I want to bring out from this text. But it's important, I think, to highlight what the Torah is teaching us, what the story of Joseph is teaching us um, in this instance. Now, the Genesis 50, 19, 20 that I have here, this is what we read in the uh, synagogue yesterday, we read in Shul yesterday. It's part of the Torah reading, uh, yesterday's Torah portion, the final Torah portion in the book of Genesis. Torah tells us, the story goes, of course, that Joseph is sold by his brothers as a slave. He ends up in Egypt. He becomes, eventually, after some more setbacks, he becomes the viceroy of Egypt. Becomes the viceroy. His brothers come down to, to buy food. There's a famine. They come down to buy food. He pretends like he doesn't know them. He speaks harshly to them. Eventually he reveals his identity. And he calls the family down. Jacob and his family, the whole family, the entire Jewish people, or what would become the Jewish people, are now in Egypt. Seventy people strong. 
So in the, in the portion that we studied yesterday, in Shul, we read about how the family lives in, in Egypt and Jacob prepares for his passing, etc. Jacob passes away and the Torah tells us that suddenly the brothers are afraid. They've been living in Egypt for a little, little while, <coughs> 17 years. Jacob finally, at a ripe old age, passes away. And now the brothers come to Joseph and they say, we're afraid. Why are we afraid? What do you think they're afraid? No, Joseph is alive. Oh, oh, oh. Jacob, the father, passes away. Yaakov, Jacob, the father, passes away. So now it's just Joseph and his brothers and their kids. They come to Joseph and they say, we're afraid. Some kind of retribution. Exactly what it is. They're afraid. So long as Jacob was alive, right? maybe he's not going to take retribution against them because out of respect for his father. But now that Jacob has passed on, and now it's just them, now, maybe this is the opportune time that Joseph was waiting to get his just desserts. So they say, uh, they kind of make up a story. They say, well, our father told us before he passed away, he didn't tell you, he told us, that you shouldn't be upset at us, you shouldn't take revenge against us, etc. They, they start backpedaling, they approach him, they say, we're your slaves, don't hurt us, don't take... They're, they're very afraid of him. They're very afraid. Again, Joseph is not just their brother, he's also the viceroy, very powerful man in Egypt. If he wants to pull together an army, he could. They approach him with fear. Let's read Joseph's response. Genesis 50, 19-20. What I will tell you is, if you can read the, book of, the entire book of... Again, we finished the book of Genesis yesterday. Genesis is done. We now turn this, this coming Shabbat to the book of Exodus. This is one of the final lessons in the book of Genesis. And what a powerful lesson. I take it away. On the hand, uh, no, on the handout, right here. Handout, oh. Sorry, yeah, handout. We're referencing the handout here. Alright. And Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid, I am instead of God. Am, am I instead am of God? Am I instead of God? You intended evil, but God meant it for good. Okay, let's, uh, let's stop here. Let's break this down. Let's break down Joseph's reply to his brothers. Number one, he says, what's the first thing he says? Don't be afraid. Because they were afraid. What were they afraid of? That's it. Don't be afraid. His second point is, am I instead of God? What does that mean? Well, that's... Uh, that's more of his. That's more of the third point that he makes. He doesn't have the power of God and wouldn't take out any. The truth is. What should you be afraid of me? In other words, I'm not God. Right. You're not. You I, don't have to face the music with me. You gotta. You gotta reconcile with. Okay, good. Okay, good, yeah. Along, now, now, let's, I, I think the depth of this statement is going to be understood when we understand the depth of the third point. The third clause, the third statement. You intended evil, he says, but God meant it for good. What does that mean? That there was a bigger, bigger, um, there was a bigger plan for this that actually ended up having a positive Good. All, all of this is true. But what's the, what's the depth of what he's saying? You intended evil, and what did you do? 
You did good. Wait, wait, wait. You intended evil, and what did you do? Threw him in a pit, sold him as a slave, they wanted to kill him. You wanted to do evil, and in your own minds, you did something evil. What's, his, uh, what's the final point, though? But God meant it for good. What does that mean? That means... That's how he got down to Egypt in the first place, etc. In other words, what he's saying is... You may have intended to harm me. You may have intended for evil. But God meant it for good, which means that God sent me to Egypt. God has put me in this position for my benefit. So even though you intended to harm me, and you did actions, you took actions, that ostensibly look like they're harmful actions. Right? You meant to harm, and you did harm. They didn't not harm, they harmed. But he says, look, God meant it for good. In other words, the question is, did the brothers do anything to him at all in the first place? Or was it God who charted the course of his life at every single step of the way? What Joseph is telling his brothers is as follows. From my perspective... You never sold me. From my perspective, you never harmed me. God, you intended evil. For that, you have to speak with God. Am I instead of God? The fact that you intended to harm me, you've got you to deal with God for, for your intentions. But what you actually did, you didn't actually do anything to me. God is the one that charts the course of my life. And God sent me to Egypt, and God put me in a position to become vice, or, or put me in a place of a challenge so that I should overcome it, and interpret dreams in jail, and then become elevated to viceroy. God put me in a position to become, to reach this elevated stature. You never sold me. So your intention, in other words, what Joseph is saying is, that even though you intended evil, but I never was subject to your intentions. Because even when a person operates without recognizing that there's a higher plan in place, there is a higher plan in place. And Joseph says, I was always in tune with God's plan. And therefore, it, what you, your intentions were, are irrelevant for me. God meant it for good, and everything that happened to me has a positive potential. And it's all about me responding to that and, un, uh, and revealing, uncovering the positive potential in every situation. So I can spend my life being bitter and resentful about your evil intentions. But what's the point? Because then I'm missing the opportunity to uncover God's intention for good. Understand? In other words, if I spend my time focused on the wrong that the other person committed, what I'm doing is I'm missing the opportunity to transform, or not even to transform, forget transformation, you don't have to transform, that's what it, you're, I'm missing the opportunity to uncover how what happened to me can be for a blessing, or is for a blessing, is God's, God intended this for me for the good. If I'm focused on the other person's shortcomings, how could they make such a negative, imagine Joseph, spends his life fixated, obsessed with his brother's evil intentions. 
In the meantime, he's not living his life. And he's missing the opportunities around him to, to uncover the good, the positive potential in, in the situation that he's put into, in Egypt, in a dungeon, etc. But <clears throat> it's a lot easier to uncover the positive potential when you're not in the pit. Once you get out of the pit. Wait, 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 wait. Wait a second. Yeah, but hold on. But Joseph is sold as a slave. And even as a slave, he's not fixated on my brothers wanted to harm me, my brothers, I need to get revenge. He wasn't. He was open to opportunities. He was successful. The only person in Torah who, who the Torah refers to as Ish Matzliach, as a, as a successful human being. The only individual that Torah calls successful. You know what's the measure of success? How Torah defines success? You can go to seminars on success. Torah says, who is successful? The person that's not fixated on what other people did. Right. If, and So what I'm saying is, yeah, you're right. It, it is easy to stand back after success has, has been achieved and say, oh yeah, it, it couldn't have phased me. But my point is throughout the drama of Joseph, when he's, in, you know, he's sold as a slave to, uh, to a man named Potiphar, and then he's framed for a crime he didn't commit, and then thrown in a prison in Egypt, which wasn't uh, you know, a four-star or whatever, five-diamond facility, certainly in ancient Egypt. So he's thrown in this prison, he's thrown in this dungeon, he never is fixated on what others have done to him. It's always, what am I here for? What good can I uncover in this place? That is how the Torah defines, you want to find success? Don't worry about somebody else. And that's what he says. Do I recognize, brothers, that you messed up? Of course. But don't take it up with me. Don't apologize to me. You gotta you gotta work you you gotta do true you gotta you gotta get that square with your maker. You gotta you gotta figure that out for yourselves. Am I instead of God? Don't I'm not don't confess to me. As far as what happened in my life was only good. You know why? Because God is leading my life, not you. I don't give you the power to tell me or to dictate to me the way my life is going to run. I have the power, I have the freedom to transform this, this pit, this dungeon, into a five-star palace. And indeed he does. But it's because he looks at life in that way. He looks at the role that others can have in his life that way, that he's able to achieve that and to realize that. If he, again, if he looked at it as, I'm a victim. They sold me out. They wanted to kill me. I'm a slave. I'm framed now for a crime I didn't commit. I'm now in prison. If he looked at it like that, others hate me, no one likes me, the world's against me. You know what that means? That means he's giving power to everyone else, taking away power from himself, and taking away power, most importantly, from God. So what he does instead is he says, you intended evil. Of course you intended evil. You didn't have in mind that I should grow from this. But God put me in all of these places for my benefit. And because I knew that, I was able to indeed uncover the benefit here. As far as, what you, as, far as your intention, yeah, you've got to speak with God about that. Yeah. I understand that he had the strength of character or soul, whatever you want to call it, to be able to do this. And yet, if a person, whether they have that strength or not, if a person chose to separate themselves from someone who's, can, you know, inflicting harm on them, even if they could see that there could be some some good in the long run, I mean, would God frown mm. upon that? Because wait, 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 wait. No, no, absolutely not. No, we're not condoning staying in, in, a, in a negative situation, abusive relationship. No, no, no. no. God forbid. I mean, if Joseph had even decided, even if he wasn't bitter with his brothers, but decided he didn't want to be in a relationship with them, I 
you know, every situation would have to be judged on its own merit. Okay, so, and, and he felt that it was important that, and the reason why he puts them through a challenging, through challenging months, by not revealing his identity right away as soon as they come down to Egypt, by pretending that he's not their brother, just a ruler, and he's accusing them of being spies, and trying to, is in order to get them into a better place. To get them in a place of, of where they regret what they've done, so then he can have a relation with them. He doesn't say, he's not just saying, oh, hey, I'm your brother, let's, let's re... He, he has to get them, he has to, in a sense, break them, but it's for their benefit. It's not for his revenge. But yeah, I don't, yeah, let no one misunderstand, yeah, no, no, no. Let, let no one misunderstand that what I'm saying is that, you know, we should keep ourselves in negative situations because it's for, the, what it means is, how do you look at it? Now, what, how you look at it, now, what, what should you do about it, that's something else. The question is, how do you look at it? Do you look at it as, the person has power over me, or I'm here to learn from it, either to get away from it, or to learn from it, what I, that's going to depend on the situation. But the general point is, uh, it's going to be the same. The perspective. So I want to now. Let, oh, yeah, you go. Sorry. No worries. Um, kind of playing off what Norris said before is that you know people when bad things happen to you or someone wrongs you or whatever, and people say to you everything happens for a reason. Yeah. And a lot of times when you're in that spot, it's like the last thing that you. Want <laughs> right. <laughs> Don't tell me that. I need some sympathy. You know, right. All in God's will or all that stuff, and you're like seriously, like you don't want to hear it. Right. So that's why I started. How did I start this class? With the kids. Right, but I started by saying we react in certain ways. So I think 99% of us, when somebody wrongs us, and they intend to wrong us, not by accident, they intend to wrong us. They intend to wrong us, and they wrong, and it hurts. They hurt us. The, the revenge, we feel what we want to reve- take revenge. For sure, resentment, bitterness, anger, these are natural feelings. The question is, the question, but here's my question, but here's my, wait, 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 but, but that's, but I, I, that was the first point, so I'm going to get back to that point in a second, but here's what I, here's what I, where I'm going with all this. The natural reaction of a human being is anger, bitterness, resentment, revenge, all of these negative, negative emotions. We all know, at least we should know, that these are, as natural as they are, they're also unhealthy. As natural as they are, they're toxic. Resentment, I put here on the sheet, unknown, because I, I looked this up. And there's, it's attributed to Mandela, to a, lot of, a bunch of different people, so I figured, well, I'm going to choose one. I'm going to write unknown. Resentment, look on the sheet, is like taking poison and waiting for the other person to die. In other words, feeling anger, bitter, right? You carry a grudge in your heart and you're... Uh, it's only hurting you. The other person, they don't know about it. Unless you tell it to them and then they know about it. But, it, but it's, it, it's digesting poison. Shrinking poison. And you're hoping uh, the other person should die. It doesn't work like that, number one. Number two is why should you take in poison? So you should... The person should have tried to harm you and done something to harm you. God forbid... And then on top of that, you're also in t- drinking poison. You're also bitterness and resentment. So here's the point. We all know that, this is, that these are toxic feelings. These aren't healthy for us. And they're not healthy for us. Certainly they're not healthy in the sense of 
realizing a, 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 a higher dimension from this experience. They keep us, they keep us tethered to the negativity of the experience. But the issue, the problem is, as I said at the top, it's very difficult to change. And when I say change, here's what I mean. It's very difficult to get outside of our natural reaction. When somebody does something wrong to us, we feel bitter. We feel angry. That's a natural reaction. Or sadness, or whatever, whatever the negative emotion is. Whatever the flavor is. There's a negative feeling. So how do you get out of that? How do you get out of that? Let's keep that question for here for a second, on the table. Let's keep, wait, wait, because I want to address the, the, the first thing that you mentioned. Which is, I agree with you. When you're going through a challenging situation, the last thing you want is somebody preaching and saying, oh, you have... So what's the point? The point is, it doesn't work if somebody else tells you this. It has to come from within. If it comes from within, there's no re- you don't resent the person telling you not to be resentful, because it's you. You understand the difference? In other words, if you feel like somebody harmed you, and you're going through a challenging situation, somebody says, it's all for the good. So you were resentful to the situation, and now you're resentful that you're telling me that I shouldn't be resentful. Who are you to tell me not to be resentful? Are you going through this? Do you know what it feels like? You're telling me that I should find something good from this. Who are you? Well, the thing is, years later, I'm thinking about a specific thing in my life, but years later, I can look at it and go, it was a good thing, and it's, you know, but... But here's the trick, again. For somebody else, and this is what John was saying, for somebody else to start preaching, it's not the place. The question is... From a healthy place. How do I, how do I, and you can ask the same question, how do I get into a place where my reaction to something harmful, something negative, is not resentment, is not anger, is not bitterness, is not all the toxic, poisonous emotions, but rather a healthy feeling of, you did that to me, but, and you intended evil, but God meant it for good. How do we internalize Joseph, so it sounds impossible. Are you going to tell us how? <laughs> yes, I'm going to tell. Yes, I'm going to tell you how. Huh? If you believe, if the God is the operative now. Right, but how do you get there? Right, I've got a question backing up. But the first thing you talked no about was you said you've got four boys. Yes. You know, three of which you can see what their personalities are like. Right. All right. I'm 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 asking a parenting question tied to this. Yes. I, I was playing with my nephew's tennis yesterday. One of them accidentally hit the ball into the other one. The other one promptly walked over and hit him with the racket. Right. All right. Natural, you know, natural. Two boys, right? One is two boys, right? Happens one all the time. Six, <laughs> the other one's four. The four-year-old hit the six-year-old. Yeah. All I could do was say, sit down. That's not appropriate behavior. Right. Can you, you said it's not our place to be telling other people, but well, we're parents or no, we're yeah. uncles or whatever. How would you respond? To Abs- that well, okay, so obviously you take the racket away from the child. <laughs> sit the child down. <laughs> no, no, no. When it comes to parenting, of course the parent's role is to, is to, is to educate, and, and, or, the, or the uncle or whatever, the, the, the caretaker, the teacher, right? You've got, you got to step in, you've got to diffuse the situation, you've got to time out, whatever it is, you've got to you know, calm the child down. But here's the question. The question is like this, and really this, this is just, it's all tying into what we're, we're talking about. The natural reaction of the four-year-old was... Wait, so the six-year-old hit the ball again. Accidentally hit the ball right. but the, the four-year-old. The natural reaction is, you hit me, I'm going to hit you. Right? That would be the revenge type thing. And even though you may not have attended for evil, I don't really care. I got hit, you're going to get hit. If I'm going down, you're going down. And if I, if I got hit here, you're going to get hit there. And I'm maybe I'll crank it up a few notches. Here's a, that's a natural reaction. And it's not something that's a learned behavior. It's a natural behavior. That's, this is my point. My point is there are certain things that are ingrained, part of our nature. 
part of our nature is when things when people criticize us we get defensive when when pe- people harm us we get angry or we want to revenge all of these are natural feelings here's the point now here the question is how do you get out of that now when you're dealing with a 4 year old so my tech, the, what I'm about, what, what I'm, what I'm going to express is not going to work yet for the four-year-old. It's a process. Right. So, to a four-year-old, you got to step in and stop it and make sure that and, and do your best to inform the child by different in different ways, whether through rewards or through other, other you know discipline. That you cannot. And by the way, discipline is not then taking a, a bigger racket and clapping the kid, because all that's doing is, is creating the cycle of, uh, of violence. But it's, it's about stepping in and making sure that the child knows that this is not okay behavior. But how do we get out of it? Because a lot of us are still holding that racket. But how do I get the six-year-old to forgive his brother for what he just did to him? Yeah, that's, that's hard. Look, it's, it's difficult. But let, forget the six-year-olds. How do we get out of it? Yeah. Well, just because I have a lot of experience with kids, yeah. you need to explain to the Right. Yeah, for sure. You got to step in and do whatever tools. Diffuse the situation. Time out. Yeah, absolutely. You got to, yeah, explanation if the kid can understand. Look, my Sean was a feisty one. My three year old, he's feistier than all of them. He'll go take on the seven year old. And he's, Sean's tiny. He'll take them all on. Everyone's got different personalities. So you can explain. I mean, he's still, he's three. He's not. But um, but it's, it's, uh, yeah. Well, but on the other hand, kids have a way of consequence if you're careless and hit somebody, they might hit you. And, and so you're saying that itself is an education. Alright, good. <laughs> and then the air's clear and you haven't got this repressed anger that comes out. Right. So I've heard it's a difference between boys and girls. I don't have any girls, but so I've heard that, you know, girls... Anyway, but boys, they kind of like fight it out and then it's, uh, then it's done. I don't know. I don't have any experience in this. The way you come to your question <coughs> um, is, for me... It's almost like a force of, um, it's like a discipline and a practice that if you if you begin to transform and get perspective on a perceived negative experience and see that it turns into, it's like get, once you get out of the pit and then retrospectively, Good. you look back and you say, well, my experience now is that that was a blessing and so the next time you're encountering that same challenge, you, you draw on your experience. Very good. So one way, so this is a very powerful way. One way is by utilizing past experience and saying, you know, it may have taken 20 years, but I now see that there was some, there was, for myself, not because anybody told me, but I've now, I've now grown and matured to a place where I see that I, that it is ultimately for my good and that, and that I can transform it if I only choose to do so into a positive experience, etc. So next time going into it, that's one way. It's a strong way. But here's, here's what I want to present. And this is something that is critical to Chabad philosophy and Chabad Hasidic uh, teachings. And it's captured in the name Chabad itself. Chabad, as we know, is an acronym for three Hebrew words, Chachma, Bina, and Das, which are translated typically as wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. More accurately, are translated as conception, comprehension, and connection. The point of Chabad is that how you think and how you understand things is going to change how you react to things. The mind has power over the heart. So long as we don't have the right way of thinking, a healthy way of thinking, our natural reactions 
are going to remain as they were, which sometimes is good and sometimes is not so good. And a natural reaction when somebody harms us or tries to harm us, whatever, is all the toxic feelings that we spoke about, toxic emotions. And again, that's the way we are naturally. But the human being has been given a tool to overcome the natural reaction, and that's called the mind. Mayach shalat al halev. The brain has power to rule the heart. Did it's you not say easy. How you think determines, can determine how you act or how you feel. How you feel and therefore how you will react. Right, how you feel and then how you react. Yeah. I just think that's an integral part of the whole parenting process is to um, have an effect on how your children will think about situations. Absolutely, absolutely. And that, along the lines of what Erica was saying, is explaining to the child a different way to look at it. It's an accident, etc. In other, right, this is the role of educators and parents because and, and for ourselves. Is drawing on the rest of their lives. Exactly. Rao, you're saying from what you were told as a child, how to. Exactly, exactly. It's a powerful thing to, to, because again, we all have raw emotions, gut reactions, the way we, and it's, uh, there may, there's some variance, obviously, but there are certain natural ways in which we respond. The idea is that a human being has been given a tool to override the natural reaction, and that's called the mind. When the mind understands something and thinks and, and is in a, in, a, in a certain place, it can override the natural reaction and start thinking about it in a different way. Joseph didn't wait. This is, a, this is the critical point I mentioned before, but we, we need to mention it now. Joseph didn't wait 22 years down the line when he gets out of jail. And everything, sorry, 22 years down the line when Joseph is viceroy and everything is going well, to then say, oh, you intended for evil, but God, int- God meant it for good. He felt that all along. How, why, how did he feel that and why did he feel that? And what I want to tell you today is that you already have that answer. And sometimes... The challenge with Kabbalah and Kafi, with this, is that it seems like we're getting philosophical and esoteric, and we're getting, we're talking about the Achdus Hashem, the unity of God, and it's, what does it mean? Here's what it means. Here's what it means. When you study these ideas, you study the unity of God, and the oneness of God, and how God is one means that there's nothing else in the world. But that, when you know that, and you feel that, and that becomes real, suddenly you see perspective changing. Perspective changing and then reaction changing. By raise of hand, I'm treading into vulnerable territory. Who has felt that, that what they've learned the Kabbalah and coffee in this class has helped them react in certain situations differently than perhaps they would have otherwise? Okay. This is the point. This is the reason why chapter 3 we spent a few months on, this concept. It seems like an esoteric concept. The concept that God is one, there's nothing else, and that the constellations don't have power, the angels don't have power, right? The Egyptians said, no, 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 we have all these other gods, and God says, no, I'm going to hit you with plagues, and you'll see how powerful your other gods are. It's only me. I'm God in heaven and on earth. God is not only in heaven. God is also on earth. This theme again and again and again. And it sounds theoretical. So what's the point? So I know, okay, God is one, God is everything. But if it's really real, if we really get it, and there's a difference between hearing it and getting it, and getting it means it's yours, you own it. If you own this concept, and you feel like in this world, it's only God, and then me, because God has given me free choice what to do with that. But it's only God, God and me, that's it. 
not the not the angel, not the constellation, not the boss, not the friend, not the the angry you know commuter. Nothing, nothing else has power over me. It's only God and the choices that I make. That's it. My reaction, if I internalize that, my reaction is Joseph's reaction. You intended evil, but God meant it for good. Why? Because there's only God. So, this is what you said before, Doris. That this is the faith. But how do I get there? I get there by putting my mind in a different framework. By putting, putting a different way of looking at the world, of understanding things in front of my, in front of my eyes, and then internalizing that up here. The more that becomes real up here, the more that can change my reaction over here in my heart the next time something like that happens. So that no one else has to tell me, don't worry, it's, good. it's all going to be for the good. I feel internally, of course it's for the good. Of course God meant it for the good. Because nothing else has power over me. Because if I give that power... Look, I, I just want to read the quote that I uh, kind of paraphrase. Hasidism. There's a Hasidic philosophy. To carry resentment, this is not in the original Yiddish or Hebrew, but this is my... Uh, to carry resentment is to grant power to a created being. Why? Because when I'm resentful, what am I saying? You harm me. What am I doing? I'm giving power to a human being. What am I saying? There's God. God is powerful. And then there's you. You're also powerful. Suddenly, I don't have one God. I have two gods. God as defined by that which wields power. Resentment is idolatry. Resentment is idolatry. That's the point. So we spent a whole chapter 3 defining idolatry. And my point is, if it remains theoretical and you understood it, it's also okay, as long as the next time you're faced with it, you're reacting in a different way because of what you, theor- because of wh- what you believe, what you know. But if it remains so theoretical that when you're faced with a situation, you're not wrong on that, that has to be tweaked. So again, to carry resentment is to grant power to create a being. To truly let go of resentment is to grant power only to God. The only way I can let go of resentment is to say, in the moment, is to say, this is not coming from you, this is coming from God, and if it's coming from God, it's good. So therefore, you have to deal with your issues. You, am I instead of God? You've got to deal with God. You intended evil. You've got to deal with God. As far as me, God meant it for good. Why? Because I don't grant you that power. I do not serve idols. I believe in monotheism. Mono, the strictest, truest form of monotheism. There's only God. There's only one force. There's only one force. You cannot harm me. You cannot cause the brothers sell Joseph. They harmed him. They sell him down to Egypt. They harmed him. He was framed by his masters, by, by the mistress of the house for, uh, for attempted rape. For, for, yeah, he's thrown into jail for, for 12 years. He was harmed, right? He was never harmed. He never looked at himself as being harmed. Why? Because it's all from God. So, again, my point here is a few things. First of all, to understand how all of this plays out, but also to bring out the point that everything that we study here, it's all about, even if you don't see right away the immediate, what's the, what's the payoff? All of it is getting you to think differently. See the world in a different way. When that happens, you change. That's how, that's how change really happens. Ch- because go change over here. Go tell the child, don't get angry. And if you're still angry, I'll scream at you so you shouldn't get angry. Well, how are you going to fight? You can't fight an emotion with an emotion. The only way to change the reaction 
is by is by what you is by what you're thinking up here. That's the only way to change, according to Judaism and, and Chabad Hasidic philosophy. The only way to change here is from up here. One of the most powerful um, concepts to me was when the rabbi came and talked about reincarnation. Um, and you know that basic concept that every soul is comes into this world with positive and negative attributes right. to explore for the duration of their life. And if you fulfill that exploration, you go back and come down. Work on the next with, shade, yeah. That you know that's a, a that was a very powerful concept to me because then what's what is seemed as what you could perceive as overwhelming is just a challenge that you're. It's part of your package. It's part of what you're what you're given with, exactly. And and the idea along those lines to take away any sense of guilt. It's not your. If you feel like you have, you know, you have a challenge in a certain area, it's you didn't create yourself like that. You didn't create yourself with a challenge of anger or jealousy or whatever. With all the, uh, you know, I, I I feel guilty because I always react in a certain way. It's not you. Take it away from you. This is what you're given to work on. So work with it. Don't don't fight it. Embrace it. But again, that's another example of, of... And here's the point. All of this is giving us a perspective about how to see the world, how to see ourselves, how to see, how to see life, how to see everything. When we integrate these ideas, they're profound. They can be, and they should be, profoundly life-changing. Yeah. So, I have a friend... Oh, sorry. No, no, no. Um, who is going through some rough things. Um, not me, really. We really do have a friend. Um, <laughs> I know. Sounds bad. Um, and she, I wouldn't say she's a religious person, but she, you know, she observes Shabbat and, and lights candles. You know, she's a good Jew. I would describe her. Um, she constantly is saying all the time now how God is punishing her because she's going through all these things. So is it really just because she isn't here? Is that... I'm, I'm, look, it's there's a natural the idea to, uh, that a person should say when they're going through a challenge that God hates me or God is punishing me and why me, etc. These again, these are all natural. Absolutely, to feel bad or to judge a person for thinking that and feeling that—that's a wrong reaction. That it—that's—that's no, that's, no, no, no. I'm, 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 just, I'm just taking it through the journey. So number one is it's an absolutely natural reaction, in my opinion. The only way, one of the the only way to override that, you can tell her from day to tomorrow, as you, as you, we talked about before, that God loves you, and that right. it's got to come from within. It's gotta, it's gotta be, it's gotta click. The, the challenge is like this. The challenge is when you're going through the difficulty to then start gathering the strength and the, getting the new perspective is going to be even more challenging because now you're in the moment of challenge and have to. So the best way to do it is. You know, as Amy said, to get an edu- to get educated with these these firm concepts as a child, parents and schools and whatever, to get these fundamentals down, that God loves you like an only child, as Bashem thought, that there's only God and God only has intention for good, that no one else has power over you. You are, you have an unbreakable soul and spirit. No one else can uh, can harm you. So all of these, you have the more the stronger you have these ideas here and and just everywhere, then it, it, it'll uh, when when the challenge comes, it's easier to draw on it and not and and be able to let's let's say react or be within the challenge in a in a more healthy way without the negative feelings on top of that. 
So, as far as practically what to say to your friend, I mean, we can schmooze about it after the class, as far as some details, whatever you're comfortable sharing. We can speak strategies and whatever, how to encourage her, and maybe, maybe to bring her to a class to Torah. Does God reward and punish? I was just going to say that. Does, does he ever say, no, this is a bad thing that's going to happen? No, we don't understand. We don't, Judaism doesn't believe in punishment. More of, there are consequences, and there are, but it's more than consequences. Every consequence... There, you could have some. There are three. There are three levels to this. I would say punishment, consequences, and then instruction. So one level is somebody does something wrong, and so punished, right? Just like the old, you know, you got to write on the chalkboard, "I will not disturb class." It doesn't really connect to. It's just kind of random. Then there are consequences. It's kind of like if you put your hand in the fire, you get burned. So it's instructive to a certain sense, but it doesn't. It doesn't actually give you the power to heal. Torah's punishments, again, quote-unquote punishments, Torah's consequences, are understood to be, not only are they not random retribution, not only are they consequences, but they're actually giving the tools for healing within the punishment or within the consequence itself. One example that I'll cite is um, tsaras, tsarat which is usually mistranslated as leprosy, biblical leprosy. It's not leprosy. It looked like leprosy, but it was a spiritual malady. And our sages tell us that it came from gossiping, Lashon Hara, speaking bad about somebody, even if it's true, even if whatever, just gossiping about somebody else. So back in the times, in biblical days, biblical times, they used to develop a, uh, a patch of white skin. As uh, Now, the way to deal with that is, if it was diagnosed by a Kohen, um, that it was indeed Sarat, the way to deal with that would be that the person is sent out of the camp for a period of time. They were sent literally outside. The, everyone lived in a certain... They were sent outside. They had to sit by themselves and kind of... So it sounds like, okay, so you're in timeout, right? But here's the point. person realizes that what got them into the, into the predicament in the first place too close and gossiping. So you pull the person away from that. And you're also instructing the person to realize that when you speak negatively about somebody, you're creating divisiveness. Because now you're turning people against that person. So divisiveness, this is what divisiveness feels like. This is what it means to feel to be separated. So on a practical level, you're separating the person from... And this is before cell phones, obviously. So they were really separated out. So first of all, you're separating the person from the opportunity to fall into that place. You're also in giving the person a sense of the feeling of being separated and, and marginalized like that. And now it's a powerful... It's not a punishment. And it's not just a consequence. It's actually an instruction about how to live your life in a better way because of that. So are there, is there a concept of reward and punishment? The answer is yes. But not in the way that perhaps you might think. One second. Yeah. The thing you've been describing so far is when we're in receipt of negative consequences, but there are times where, let's say for me, I have to be negative. I have to fire someone or administer negative. How do you put that in this context? You may not be phrasing that right. Well, I, I think part of, part of a, if you understand that, uh, I don't know, it's going to be difficult because we're going to tell somebody that you fire that you should know I'm firing you, but it's an opportunity for right. you. It's good for you. Right. It's good for you. You could say that, but if the person's not, it's good for me also. It's good for, it's good for the company, and it's even good for you. You can say that. 
if you really mean it, if, if you're just saying it to say it and it's right. going to sound hollow, even if you say it because you mean it, it may, it may, the person may become resentful because of that because you're trying to sugarcoat. Right. Same way because they haven't internalized it yet. The short answer is, yeah, you're kind of in a pickle over there. It's, it's, mm-hmm. not, it's not an easy thing. You know, I, I, how to go about it the best way. You gotta apologize. You gotta apologize. Yeah. I mean, what person doing a really bad job? I mean, on one hand, on one hand, I believe this person's earned their right to be fired. Right. If I've done everything properly, but then I think about their family and the removal of the income and all this, and I start to get into a whole big thing, which causes anguish between me and my boss. I think that goes right back to what Joseph was telling his brothers. You're not God either. Right. You're just doing your part. But right. It feels like Ultimately, a godlike act where I'm saying I'm like taking it, away your it feels income. Like it, it may so be an not. opportunity for them to find a better. The question is how to educate. What I would say is take a few months beforehand, if it's looking like that, and start bringing them to Kabbalah. So they'll start realizing that everything's for the good and whatever. Start, I would start sitting down and start, start teaching. Yeah. I have a question that I think is related to that, which is while it's true that there's no... Um, that the, the, other, the supposed evildoer or harm bringer to me, you know, isn't God. And right. Is, is not. It's a question of perspective, right? Like Joseph is telling us, what, what he's saying is you still have your relationship with God to clean up. Right. So there is still harm. Right. But that, when, when I harm you, that's, that's between me and God. Correct. When, when I receive harm, God. right. When I receive harm, it's right. coming from but God. Both are true. Both it, it's both true from your perspective Correct. that I haven't harmed you, but it is true from my perspective that I, I have harmed you. You did. You have, I and you have intended to. to and you, exactly. To that exactly. That's exactly what he's saying. Don't be. Am I instead of God? In other words, don't come to me. Right. Don't be afraid of me. <laughs> be afraid of uh, of God. In other words, you got to cl- not afraid. Uh, sounds like, uh, but, but be, yeah, be you know that's you got to clean up that relationship exactly. Both and both are true. Well, one thing that also comes to mind is this concept of um, hitting rock bottom before you surrender and accept that you are not in control. And sometimes you have to be in such overwhelming situations that. Your whole paradigm has to shift because you're brought, you're literally brought to your knees. And when you're brought to your knees, that's when you can realize that it's not your ego that can solve this situation, right. that there's another dimension happening. The, the trick is, though, even when you realize that you don't have power, you also have to realize that no one else has power either. Right. To let go of resentment and to kind of clean the slate with others that others you don't. It's it. It's it's that is a powerful, powerful idea. I'm, I'm with you, but I and, and but I think though that the power of what we study is hopefully that we don't have to. I think well, if if a person hits that place and and recognizes it in a powerful way for themselves, they've they've recognized it. But it does that doesn't only have to happen that way. It could happen through a person really integrating these ideas. So all yeah. I said one thing. Uh, second, empathize with Jeff is I used to work in human resources and often had to fire people. And what I noticed for myself was if I worked at a place where I felt like we treated people fairly, instructed them when things weren't going well, and gave them chances and told them the consequences of, you know, if things don't improve, we'll let you go, then, like, I could sleep at night. I mean, it was hard. It was still difficult, but I could sleep at night. But then I worked at a place where that wasn't the case, where I didn't feel like there was enough um, feedback given and 
and I also, through lots of means, tried to change the system and wasn't able to and left because I couldn't keep letting people go under circumstances that didn't feel fair. So I think, too, it's too very, too, very good point. a place where you feel in alignment with what you're asked to do, and if not, can you change the environment? And if you don't feel able to do that, is it an environment that you can still... That you feel is... In? Yeah, that's and, and, a good and, point. because I do work in human resources now, and unfortunately, I, I've hired a lot of people, and I've had to be part of the letting go process, but it is being able to let go of that feeling that, oh, the income and, and the family and the... But we do do corrective disciplines, and it's not easy to fire people where I work, but it, it is the letting go process. Right. You know, but there are different circumstances, because then you have people who do something so egregious that they absolutely deserve to be removed. Right. And then the people that maybe where, where I work now, we, have, we don't have funding, so we have to let them go. But um, right. it's just, it's a practice. It's just a letting go... Right. And you hope that the person is is has the strength to be able to, to transform it into a positive. And we don't know what's for the best. I mean, it's also knowing we don't know right. what's for the best for that person. I mean, we can't say this for the best. But yeah, and I think what David was saying is like this. And, and I'm, what I'm going to do is going to present the flip side of the coin of what you said. That when it comes to us making a choice, we have to realize two things. Number one is the choice that we're making is a choice that we have to live with. Number two, what happens to the person ultimately is happening, uh, is they have the power to, to, to realize that it's their benefit and as a blessing from God, coming from God who's good. But my, but my role in it has to be clean. I have to have a clean role in it. Because if it's coming from any other place, then that's, that's my... But it's still, it's still comforting to know that God doesn't waste anything. Even my right. arm, which I have to go clean up, right. must... It doesn't mean I go around harming people. I know they're supposed to be learning lessons. Right. When I do harm you, it was part of your plan. Very well put, yeah. All right, chapter four. Let's. uh... Ah, I thought we were going to cover chapter four. We're going to get some of chapter four. Good. Good, 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 good. Well, no, I, I, listen, I felt like this is, like, at, we had a few-week break, but I figured, like, we were, and we finished chapter three last time, but, you know, it's something that, if, the more we can draw practical ideas from what we're studying, and to realize that we're not just learning something in a vacuum, but everything that we learn should, ideally, change the way we think about things, about life itself, and then that should change the way we react in the moment, I think it's a powerful demonstration, and I think it's it just aligned with what we read yesterday, what we studied yesterday, etc. Okay. It's work. I, hope so. I hope so. I hope so. All right. Uh, chapter 446. Um, does anybody need a copy? I have more copies. I've got a stack of copies over here. Oh, you have a copy? Everyone's got a copy? Okay. 46. Battling constellations. Oh, wait, wait. So, <laughs> before we get into this. <laughs> but, <laughs> but you thought it would be so easy now? <laughs> introduction <laughs> so let's I just want to seg- allow a smooth transition and segue into, into chapter 4 we just explained in chapter well okay chapter 3 concludes with this point the point that the entire Egyptian experience the slavery in Egypt and the he doesn't talk about the slavery but I'm going to the slavery in Egypt and the exodus from Egypt was all about bringing home this concept. Number one is you're a slave. What does it mean that you're a slave? You're powerless. Who has the power? 
your oppressors, the Egyptians. That's what you think. So first God puts the Jewish people in a position where everything that they know and everything that they live with tells them that there's a power, a human power, that is in control over their lives and their destinies. And then God says, here's the truth. Plague 1, plague 2, plague 3, plague 4, etc. Splitting of the sea, all that good stuff. You cannot have an answer without a question. In a sense, and I think, Doris, this is what you, the depth of what you were saying, you can't truly realize something unless you're in a position where you feel, unless you're really learning it yourself. God puts them, the, 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 the best way to educate is experiential education, or the best way to learn is experiential learning. God takes the Jewish people at, the, at, their, at their formation, the beginning of their nationhood, and He puts them in a condition of slavery. Every single all things pointed to the reality that other human beings are in control. For the slave, right? You're a slave nation. Jewish people, you're in ancient Egypt. Slaves. That's all you know, that's all your parents knew, that's all your grandparents knew. Slavery. Who's God? Who's in control? The Egyptians. Who's in control of the Egyptians? The Nile, the sheep, whatever other, whatever other deities they, they served. But it's certainly not me, and it's certainly not, uh, not anything higher. Then comes along God and says, here's the education lesson. Now that you feel that, here's the truth. The truth is that I am God, not only in heaven, but also on earth. And I will take you out of Egypt, so that you should know that there are no other powers on earth, except for me. And that you were only here as a slave so that you should learn the lesson that you're not a slave. So that you should appreciate your freedom. And so that ever from this point on, you should never ever feel like you're a slave to anything in the world. Because resentment is not only idolatry, but it's also slavery. If I feel resent, what I'm saying is I am a slave to what that person did. I'm a victim of what that person did. And what the, what the experience of Egypt is meant to do for us, was meant, was intended back then, was, and is meant for us moving forward ever since, in the 3,000 years since, is to bring home this point in the most powerful way possible, that you are not a slave, you are not subject to any other force, it's only God and you, that's it, nothing else. Hashem and you. you got to make the right choices, and Hashem controls the rest. You're not a slave. Even if you're locked up, you're not a slave. Even if people are, are trying to harm you, if they intend evil for you, you're not a slave. You're not a slave. You're free. So my, my eternal question, you know, so it took 200 years? I mean, 210 years. The Jews who have been so... It's like, all right. It's like at a certain point, you know, you would think we would, we're so slow. Look, God is... Uh, well, first of all, we are. But second of all... Look, it, why it took, and there were only, I think, 86 years of harsh slavery. It was 210 years total in Egypt from the time that they came down. But this, the harsh slavery was for about 86, 87 years, something like that. I'm not minimizing it. There's still three generations. The point is that, I don't know, I don't know the answer. The short answer is I don't know. But, but I'll tell you this, God is, we believe, the greatest educator possible.
And this too was, was, a, was a, again, was a lesson. And the, the instruction was that you're not a slave. You might think you're a slave, but you're not a slave. What does it help for those that, were, that, that grew up as slaves and died as slaves and they never, they never experienced the exodus? I don't know. We'll always be stuck with questions. But here's what we know. What we know is what the... the and this is why. Here's the point. This is why the exodus is such a fundamental part of Judaism. Why we have a, a celebration every year called Passover, and why not only on Passover, every single day in our prayers, we mention several times a day we talk about the Exodus from Egypt. Every single day in the Shema, there's an additional paragraph that talks about the Exodus. Every single day in our prayers, Exodus, Exodus, Exodus. We say, every, day, every morning in Shachar's prayer, we read the Az Yashir, the Shira, the song that the Jews sang while crossing the sea. What's the message? You're not, you're not a slave today. You're never a slave. You cannot be a slave. If God is running the world, which He is, you are never a slave. You are marching freely, just like the Jews when they realized that, that the Egyptians were finally out of the picture when they saw them drown in the sea. You are as free today, even though you're about to go to work, and you're about to face all the other you know, deadlines and, and, and what, whatever you're going to face today. You should know, you have to know this essential point. You are not a slave, you are never a slave, you are always free. Amen. Right? This is, this is the essential point, which is why the prayer is so powerful. Because it, and again, it's just the consciousness. To, to, try, to think that it's just going to happen, to think that it's just gonna, I'm just going to feel free today. It's going to happen that when, you know, when my boss tells me something, or when something, somebody tells me, I'm not going to react in an unhealthy way, I'm going to react in a healthy way, and it's just going to happen. Why? It's only going to happen if we... Put the right, if we study the right things, if we pray in the right way, if we put these things in front of us, which is why Jewish prayer every morning is preceded by some study, some uh, good old uh, Hasidic philosophy study. Study a little bit, you pray a little bit, then you have the tools. The day, look at the day like a battlefield. Look at it like a war zone. Look at it like a war zone. Are you going to show up to the battle without being armed? Well, hopefully I'll find, you know, when I'm being attacked, hopefully I'll be able to look around and find somewhere in the, in the ground, find the right tool. That's called being unprepared. And yet, for some reason, many of us are okay with putting ourselves in every day in the battle for our own sanity and our health and, and, and our spiritual well-being without arming ourselves properly in the morning, without arming ourselves properly before that. So every morning we have to arm ourselves properly, a little bit of study, a little bit of prayer, etc., a little bit of charity, tzedakah, it's not a little bit of this idea. And so the Exodus is a powerful experience, which is why it forges the Jewish people. The Exodus is called in the books of the prophets, it's the moment of the Exodus and the splitting of the sea, etc. It's called the birth of the birth of the Jewish people. The Jewish people were born at the Exodus. What does it mean that we were born then? Our purpose, our calling, our identity is then forged. Birth is when the identity comes, comes out. This is when the identity of the Jewish people come out. What is the identity? And what is the true identity of every human being? The true identity of every human being is that you're not a slave. You're a, creature, you're a creation of God. And God is in control and no other person is in control of your life. You have, you have the choices that you make and then everything else is what God has put in front of you. And that's it. And, then, and you are ultimately and absolutely free. This is a message that we need to hear, we need to remember. It's what the Exodus was all about. This is again, 
anti-idolatry. Idolatry means that there's other forces, there are other issues, that are other factors that, that have control. And here, what we're saying is, nothing else has control. This is the point of the Exodus. We had to feel slavery, feel the, feel the servitude, and then experience the freedom. Recognizing that it's, and what's the freedom? The greatest freedom is that God is in control. Oh, God's in control, so I'm not free either. God is in control, it's the ultimate freedom. Yeah. No, no. We Abraham is considered the first Jew. He was a very famous individual, and he was teaching his uh, his monotheistic uh, ways. Isaac and Jacob. The, the slavery only began when Joseph comes down to Egypt, and then the family follows, and then slowly they're 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 in a place called Goshen. They're in a what you would call like a not really get up, but they're in a segregated community. They have their own space, their own part in Egypt where they're living, you know, Abrahamic life, so to speak, or Jewish life, pre-Sinai. And then slowly, the way the Medrash explains it, or the Talmud explains it, is that Pharaoh puts out the word, he says, you know, we're building some buildings, and we need some help, and will you help? And it started off for pay, and then he took away the pay, and then they were... It, they kind of segue. It feels like our jobs, right? You start working for money, and then you realize, I sold my soul to this job. Whatever, maybe God... But the point is that they segue, they segue the Jewish people into, into slavery. And it lasted for the total amount of time they spent in Egypt was 210 years. But they weren't always slaves. But you won't find, this is a, from, what I've, from what I understand, you won't find any other story of a people that they begin as slaves. No other people begin as slaves. Because when, when you know, no other story. Anyway, the point. No, but the nation, their nationhood began in the experience of getting out of, of slavery. And the point is, that's exactly the point that we, we need to remember. You think you're a slave to this, to that, to the other, you give power. You have resent, which means you're giving power to the one who harmed you. You're upset, you give power to the one who harmed you. You feel jealous, you have power to the one that has something. Let it all go. Realize that it's not. None of it has power. That's the that, that's the message of, of the Exodus. What about the Holocaust? Okay, so when you have the Holocaust, so that's 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 bigger than. See, here's the thing. That question is bigger than any answer. So it's a good question. What I'm saying it's not only a good question; it's the biggest question. You're you're asking a question that touches on the essence of how can a a good God allow. S- such horrendous acts to happen. So for this, the answer is, we have no answer. Now, even in that situation, I was thinking of the whole time you were talking about Elie Wiesel. He, he for an individual, yeah. How he, you know, they could take everything from him, but they couldn't take his soul. They couldn't take who he was. He didn't give them that power. Like, yes, he had to withstand horrific conditions, and yet, even in, in that horrific situation, there was still someone who was able to choose Right, and again, you know, we we had a course on the Holocaust. It's a very, it's a very, it's a very charged, a very nuanced, and and it's, but you can ask the question on that answer. What about the people who did it, who were killed? So the power, the Nazis didn't have the power over them, right? So so who has the power? God. So why does God want to take so many lives? What's the what's right? You have a lot of big 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 questions. And I don't have the answer, and, and, and we're not supposed to have the answer to this. Because if we give an answer, 
then it's okay. The moment we're able to answer it, it means that we've explained it. And then it, it sits well. We never want six million to sit well. That's not, a, that's not a healthy thing. So we have to leave it as a question. There are ways to, to, to discuss it. But it's, a very, it's an elaborate topic to discuss. But to answer the question, this is, like I said, this is the biggest question. This is the biggest question. But we don't believe, no, no matter what happens, that, that there's another power outside of God. So therefore, the Holocaust is a question. If you give power to others, so then it's not a question. They were strong. They were determined. They had a plan. So that's... But it's because we do believe, we, it's, but because we do believe in God, that we have the question, how could the Holocaust have happened? And again, I'm not going to answer the... I, there's no, I'm not, I can't answer the question. I'm not going to answer the question. There's no answer to the question. But, but again, there's a lot to discuss that can, that can help with, with you know, discussing it. But as far as answering it, it can't be answered. All right. Um, so this is the purpose of the Exodus, to bring home this point. Let's start chapter 4. Right, look at this. How's that? How does this happen? All right, we're going to go for like, I don't know, we're going to go for another 5, 6, 7, maybe to like 5, 2. 7 more minutes. All right? We're gonna, chapter 4 is actually short. We're going to go through a little... No, okay, but... It only takes three weeks. It only takes... Oh, that's... So, right, chapter 4 is shorter, so it's, right, we should be done by the end of... Uh, by, before Passover, this year. Um... But, but I do see, part of my, oh, Joanne just left, part of, um, part of it is that we had such a nice, like, email uh, topic thing, and we, we're not, we didn't get to it yet, so, like, to do it again, could we do a repeat email? If you see it again next week, don't, all right, I just figured we gotta, gotta get it fresh. All right, battling constellations, let's, uh, let's get into chapter four. So, again, by way of introduction. <laughs> This was no. This is a very important point. You know, I, I don't know how much we're going to end up reading. So, here's the important point: the Exodus was an education, and it was an experiential learning. It was feeling as a slave, and then feeling the freedom of God is in control. Here's the problem, and it's a problem that we've talked about many times before. The problem is that human beings have a very short memory. So even though we can experience something for ourselves, and this really gets back, you know, this gets back to, to Mary, to your point before. You go through, God forbid, but somebody goes through a challenge, and they're resisting it and rejecting it and, and fighting with it, and then they realize later on, you know, it was for my benefit. And wow, I've learned a powerful lesson here. The question is when the next challenge comes, God forbid, that, but if the next challenge should come, so I'm more armed, I'm more likely, or perhaps I have more knowledge to be able to choose to react in a different way. But will I really choose in a different way? Or will I fall back onto old habits? And here's what I want to point out. The idea that we said before, thank you, the idea that we said before that the mind controls the heart, right? So you have a natural way of reacting, but if you study the right things, and you have the right way of, of thinking about things, react in a different way. It doesn't... It's a constant battle because the heart's always going to be wor- the heart's always going to feel how it feels. And if you want to change that, and the heart is the reaction, the gu- the first re- the initial reaction that you have to a situation, right? You feel angry, do you feel happy, do you feel? You don't have to think about it. It's almost a it's it's a it's a natural reaction that you have. It's like a snake comes, you recoil, you step back. It's like poison. Oh, you don't have to think about it. You don't have to process it at least consciously. It's something that's ingrained. It's a it's a nature. 
So if you want to battle, it's a constant thing. If you want to change the way you're going to react naturally, if, or if you modify in the moment, it's going to have to be on a, on a case-by-case situation. Here's the problem. The problem is time causes forgetfulness. And it doesn't have to be such a long time. It could be a short time. This explains what happened by the sin of the golden calf. Let's, let's pick it up inside chapter 4, page 46. All right, David, take it away. 46, Battle and Constellations. Yet the mixed multitude sought to deny God's domination over the entire world when Moshe delayed in his return from the mountain. They rebelled further by desiring that the Israelites also stray from the true belief. They exposited to the Jews their explanation that matters were just as they had seen before the Exodus. That is, that the true managers of the world were indeed the constellations and ministering the angels above. So see what happens? So there's the Exodus, and God is true. And then there's a splitting of the sea, and God is really true. And then sign and God is true, God is real, God is the only power. Got it. Done. Right? Not so fast. Later, one day late. Oh, Moses is one day late, and suddenly it's like, well, but th- let, let's personalize this idea. You know, I, in the moment I felt really connected to God, and I felt really, you know, like that was God in my life. But looking back, was it really God, or maybe it was just, uh, it just kind of worked out. You know what I mean? Like, the time and our mind are a very tricky thing. Time plus mind equals confusion over what was clear before. So what was clear in the moment is, oh my gosh, this is an act of divine providence. I feel God's closeness in this moment. Later on could be a more cynical perspective of, come on, it just worked out. It worked out. The person that I thought it wasn't gonna, it worked out. I got the phone call that I needed, or whatever. It happened to happen to happen, and it happened that it happened, right? In other words, it all happened to work out just because. So in the moment, it felt like, wow, divine providence. It's amazing. I was praying for it. I was, I really needed it, and it happened. And later on, it's like, oh come on, you really think that it's because of something supernatural? It happened because it happened. It happened because there's stuff. Yeah, it wasn't good, and then it was good. In other words, time and the mind can undo all of that which we knew to be true in the moment, it can undo it. Sorry, I keep interrupting. But no, it's not an interruption. I feel like now in my life, I'm still, not, I don't want to use the word skeptic, but I'm not a, it, it's a lot for me to have this faith. I feel like if I was there, if I saw the parting of the sea, I think that I would be like, oh, well, there you go. You know what I mean? It's such a big... I, but I, I st- well, I, I'm with you. But it's, what I say is, it's it's easy to, to point fingers. Like if I saw, if I saw that, right. we experience. You know, look, we've all experienced many uh, many it's tremendous. The of the seas today. That's exactly my point. I, yeah, I you, guess that you know, there's right. That question is, how do we look at it? And in the moment, we said, wow. You know, maybe the birth of a child, or you know, a, a very uh, important moment in a person's life, or whatever, a sim- whatever it is, something powerful that really touches the core, and it's like, oh, this is all, like, I feel really connected, and then it's it wears off. Time, look, time allows, time causes a diminishing of the feeling. It does it with pain, with loss, right? Loss immediately is very strong over time. It says in the, in, the, in the books that it's actually a blessing that we don't feel this, the, the, the acuteness of the loss conti- sorry, continuously. Because it, it, so it allows us to, re, to rebuild after loss, after someone passes away. It allows us to move on in a healthy way. Not to forget, but it allows us to not feel that that's the Shiva period, the morning, the gradual morning where we integrate back into, into life, following the stark, uh, dis- stark feeling of loss. That's one point. 
but it's also the same thing with good, with good things. It's, we feel like a sense of stark truth, and then as time goes on, it gets less and less, to the point that someone can say, yeah, it wasn't God. It was a consolation. And was, what we're saying over here, what David just read, there was an Arab of Rav, a mixed multitude. Who were the mixed multitude? The mixed multitude were a combination of Egyptians and others who had come along with the Jewish people in the Exodus. So what the, the point here is that these are individuals that really, for them it was even more integrated, that uh, the constellation, none of the things were in control. So at the time when Moses delayed, right? Moses delayed for a day in his return from the mountain, from, from on high. And suddenly it's, uh, was it really God who took you out of Egypt? I don't know. It's probably other natural forces. It's like, you know, let, let's, let, let me put it to you this way. Here's a modern example. And this is before my time. Yom Kippur War, Six-Day War. You look back, you look back at the footage, New York Times, CBS, whatever, miracle, absolute miracle. These were absolute miracles. Miracle, it, could, it can't be explained. You look back at old footage, miracle happened. And now it's like, yeah, because the Israeli army is strong and because we, we preempted them, whatever. It's a miracle, a miracle. It was good, it was good fighting. See what, what shifts? And again, it's something, it's something. So, you say, so the cynic says, well, you think it was a miracle? What, God played a role? Come on, it was a military situation. It was circumstances. They were sleeping. They bombed them on the ground. Whatever it was. That was a miracle. So supernatural suddenly. Some miracles happening in modern day times. Really? This is what the heir of Rav was telling the Jews. By, by Sinai, four, um, 40 days. 40 days or 39 days after Moses goes up, they said, Oh, you think it was God that took you out of Egypt? Nah, it was the constellations. Just substitute constellations for whatever else we put in control. Military, economy, blah, blah, blah. Whatever we put in control, substitute that for what they, what the, what they were saying about the constellations, which we'll get to uh, more elaborately next week. Okay? <laughs> that it was... Next week. That's what I was saying, that we kind of had a good email going, and I don't want to, you know, but maybe repeat. Part two. Dude? Dude? That's uh, my French coming out. So I'm driving in Montreal, and I see this red sign that says Arrête. I'm like, what does Arrête mean? So I just take it. That, to be in Montreal. Arrête means stop, and it's got the hexagonal thing. Okay, anyway, let's, let's get back here. So, here's the point. The point is that, through, that with time... And a good cynical, you know, a good cynical friend can undo anything that you felt was true. No, this is this is what this is no. It's not what I'm. This is what he's saying. It's what he's saying. Time plus cynical friend, or if your friend could be inside your head, your friend could be, huh? Yeah, and and Tanya, we got lots of voice. No, it's true. We all have different voices. Godly soul, animal soul. Time plus cynical friend equals cold water doused and everything that you felt was, was true and holy. Everything that you felt was real, etc. That's gone. Wipe, it's, it's all wiped out. What's the point? The point is, as I said before, you've got to be, gotta be strong. You've got to constantly remember and get yourself back in that place. You've got to constantly celebrate Passover. You've got to constantly remember the Exodus. You've got to constantly pray. You've got to constantly study. The more you put these things in front of yourself, the more you'll be armed. Because if you're cynical about God being real and about God being, and God actually 
took the time out of his busy schedule to, to get involved in my... So then God's not involved here either, and that person did harm me, and that person does have a mind, and I do want to take revenge. And suddenly all of the toxic feelings are back, and it's, we're back to square one. My point is, all of this is a cautionary note. That even when it feels true and it feels right, and wow, Kabbalah today, I really got a sense of, first of all, that what we learned in chapter 3 is not theoretical, but it's practical, and that next time someone does something, I'm going to recognize that through the passage of time, it's, it, without working on it, it can slide back to where it was before. So you just got to be careful. Chapter 4 is going to present the actual argument that the Erev Rav, the mixed multitude, used in convincing the Jewish people to, uh, to serve the golden calf. Fascinating, fascinating um, angle on it. I've also learned a lot about animals in the last few days. And uh, I'll share all that with you next week. Same bad time, same bad time.